On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today are Jonathan Blockmacher and Marty Shankman to talk about asset protection planning after tax reform. Now let's talk about asset protection and the enhanced viability of certain asset protection techniques after tax reform. Marty, how does the expanded exemption for gift, estate, and GST increase the availability of common asset protection strategies, and how can the lawyer, CPA, and other advisors help their clients? Uh, thanks, Bob. I, I think it's a great question, and I think the increase in the exemption amount provides a great opportunity for practitioners to uh, educate their clients about a, a huge new opportunity for asset protection planning. Um, certainly in the simplest level, if you have another $5 million exemption, a client can take and gift and transfer $5 million of additional assets into a protected trust structure, uh, or even ideally a, a, a multi-layered structure where you have uh, LLCs and other entities tiered that are then owned by uh, an appropriate uh, trust or series of trusts in order to fractionalize ownership. For some wealthy clients, the, the exemption amount has always been a cap on how much they can shift out of their estate in order to protect it. But I think there's, there's more to the story than just that. So if a client uh, had a larger estate and in the past wanted to shift, let's say, interest in a, a family business out of their estate for protection or in real estate out of the, uh, their estate uh, to protect it better, uh, once they capped out or hit the exemption, they'd have to use techniques like grants or note sales to try to shift further value out of their estate into protective structures. But grants and note sales both have leakage back into the estate. The note by the note payments and the note itself that remains an asset in the estate that could be reachable, even if that asset is diminished in value because of the terms of the note. And in a grant, the leakage back is the annuity payment. So the new exemption is something that can certainly enable clients to shift a large uh, uh, swath of wealth out of their estates. And if the client's married, it could be that by uh, uh, shifting assets between the spouses, you can use the exemption that each of them will, will gain as a result of the uh, tax reform legislation. Just be mindful that if one spouse, say wife, is giving interest in an asset to husband, that uh, you should have those assets remain for some period of time in the husband's name ideally have some independent economic event distributions, et cetera, et cetera, occur before the husband then makes a gift into a trust that he creates so that you can, uh, uh, again, try to minimize or deflect an attack based on a step transaction doctrine. So, so using the new exemption is a great opportunity to fund uh, new techniques uh, and new planning uh, to protect assets. But I think it's also a great opportunity to go back and revisit existing plans and see how they could be shorn up. And it's not just a tax issue, but um, an issue of how those trusts are structured. Uh, the unfortunate reality is that a large portion of the trusts that exist, the irrevocable trusts that clients have set up over the years, have been porous from an asset protection standpoint. Too often, there are trusts out there that at a specified age make distributions or have mandatory income distributions and, and sometimes we've unfortunately all found where a client has a trust that was set up long ago, the, the uh, if you will, the boilerplate in the back of the instrument provides some type of course, uh, uh, a means by which a claimant may be able to pierce into the trust. So it's critical to review the status of existing trusts and make sure that those are optimized before any new planning is done. 
And the uh, Powell Ferry case that just came out recently uh, illustrated how decanting a trust that gave the beneficiary the right to draw out substantial portions of trust assets in corpus could be decanted into a new trust that eliminated um, that access to the trust and thereby help protect the assets. But that's something that we should all be looking at before we pursue the new planning is making sure the existing planning is in proper shape and that we don't simply take and use this, this newfound exemption uh, gift from the government uh, to, to enhance the value of asset tr uh, trusts that are not optimal from an asset protection perspective. Jonathan? Uh, those were great remarks, Marty. Let me add a little bit more. One easy thing to do for asset protection is merely give away another $5.5 million to family members, whether that's, you know, to your kids or your grandkids. Again, Marty and I always prefer it be in trust, but you can just give it away, have no access, and you're probably going to be very safe from any creditor claims, not just because you're not going to be a beneficiary or have access to the property, but even a claim of a fraudulent transfer. A fraudulent transfer is one in which you are trying to hinder, delay, or defraud a creditor. But I've been told by a number of bankruptcy judges, and including a professional trustee in bankruptcy, that if you had a significant independent reason for the transfer, this is perhaps a little like the significant legitimate non-tax reason that's something that's used in determining whether or not you're going to have a limited partnership brought back in your estate. But if you have a significant reason to make the tra transfer, it will not be considered fraudulent. Well, the fact of the matter is that you're getting an additional $5.5 million exemption, which may go away. You either have to use it or lose it. So whether you do it to a trust of which you're potentially an eligible beneficiary, but again, as I've explained, I wouldn't make your client directly a beneficiary of that trust where the trustee can give her access to the property. You can say, we are doing this, and your estate planning attorney will be able to verify that you were doing it to take advantage of that increased exemption because it's going to go away. So that provides a tremendous opportunity to do estate planning, even if your client may have some concerns about creditors. Bob, let me, let me add a point. I think for some practitioners listening to this, even the $5 million exemption seemed like uh, something in the stratosphere uh, and an $11 million exemption even more so. But all the planning we're talking about applies throughout the, the entire spectrum of wealth levels for clients. And the reality is, uh, my, 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 my guess would be, because I don't think we can really find the data, is that the vast majority of clients have not done nearly enough asset protection planning, and a very significant portion of clients that have done any type of asset protection planning have really not done so optimally. So for practitioners to bring these clients to the table uh, and help guide them whether or not the new exemption was needed, all the planning that we've talked about is really, really critical. And another piece just to add, which again, uh, you know, it's not just the new tax law, but obviously the new tax law, as Jonathan and I explained, gives great opportunities. It's all the basic stuff that we as practitioners all know. How many of our clients uh, make loans from entities or uh, trusts without proper documentation, without paying interest, uh, have personal expenses written off on trusts and entities without proper documentation? And just to circle back to things that we spoke about um, in one of the other segments of these podcasts, with the restrictions on itemized deductions, 
we may very well all see clients endeavoring to make payments out of business entities that they can no longer get a deduction for personally with the new high standard deduction and other restrictions. That may very well serve to undermine, as we all know, the integrity of those entities. So the, 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 the ripple effects of what tax reform may do um, is critical to keep an eye on. So if we start to identify clients paying personal expenses out of businesses because they can't get a deduction personally, that's going to undermine existing asset protection. So it's not just the exemption, it's really the full array of how all this massive tax legislation will affect our clients' conduct. So if you could boil down to three or four things with this enhanced exemption, what should, if a lawyer or CPA or financial planner knows that one of his clients is very concerned about asset protection, what are the four or five steps they should take? I'll take a shot at it and then let Jonathan fill in. I think, number one, you want to talk about reviewing existing trusts and structures to make sure that they're optimally handled. So, for example, if there's an old trust out there that the client believes is providing asset protection, but that trust has mandatory distribution to the children, say, at age 40, decant that trust. Maybe if the trust wasn't GST exempt, now that the client has this big chunk of new GST exemption, especially for clients that have uh, wealth below the threshold of the 11 million, you can use some of this new exemption amount to uh, uh, make a late allocation of GST exemption, decant the trust, and now you have a, a, a new and improved trust that's GST exempt and will never have to have outright distributions of corpus uh, to any of the heirs, providing far improved uh, asset protection for the heirs. So I guess number one is, is review existing planning. Number two is use the exemption while you have it because we've said many times no one really knows how long this will last and whether a future administration may change it. Use the new exemption to fund appropriate asset protection trusts. And as Jonathan explained earlier, be very careful how you structure the client's access to those assets. You need to provide access, but you need to do it in a cautious and creative uh, uh, way um, for them to do it. Don't forget the general planning uh, considerations while focusing on tax planning in terms of making sure entities or formalities are adhered to and so on and so forth. And the entity formalities and the, the, the desired pristine nature of entities from an asset protection perspective may be eroded by the desire of clients to shift otherwise non-deductible items to entities where they may perceive they're getting a deduction. So just as one example, the elimination of the ability to deduct tax prep fees as an itemized deduction, and forget whether or not the client actually realized a benefit, but psychologically, if clients know they can get no deduction, we're going to find lots of clients paying more their, their, their tax prep and accounting fees out of entities for personal tax and accounting work. We need to be mindful of that because those are the kinds of things that when there's a divorce or a lawsuit, if the claimant starts to find a loan that wasn't documented, the accounting fees that were personal, it doesn't take too many of those things to, to create an image that the client is using the entity or trust for that matter as their alter ego. And this alter ego theory is exactly one of the, 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 the main constructs that courts have used to pierce through trusts and entities in order to, to let claimants realize on those assets. So I think I made four, you asked for five. I'll, I'll see if Jonathan can elaborate and perhaps add a fifth. Well, well let me, uh, that was great, Marty. Let me add a couple of points that uh, I think might be considered. One is if you're married, 
and you create a trust for your spouse, and maybe the thing to do is to define your spouse not as Patty, as in Marty's case, but the person to whom you are married at the time in question. So if your spouse dies and you remarry, indirectly through your new spouse, you would have access to the trust. And because your brother might be the trustee, uh, your brother can control how much is distributed to your spouse and therefore how much be, might be diverted away from you. That's a factor to consider. And again, you're not really getting worried about the, the, the risk of losing everything because you get divorced because it's not you know, Patty and Marty's case who's going to always be the uh, spouse of the trust. It's the woman to whom he's married at the time in question. I think that's a kind of an important thing to, to think about. Uh, on the question of losing the deduction for tax preparation fees and for management fees, I can't give you a guarantee, but I believe that the fiduciary fees and the attorney's fees and the fees to prepare a Form 1041 of a non-grantor trust will be deductible because of the way they're treated under Section 67E. Section 67A is the one that says you can only deduct itemized deductions to the extent that they exceed 2% of the adjusted gross income. 67B basically indirectly told us what itemized deductions are subject to it. And it just says the following are itemized deductions. And the amendment in the Act basically says that the itemized deductions under 67 are no longer going to be allowed as a deduction. But I think because Section 67E says essentially that the uh, things that are incurred in operating a trust, which would not have been incurred if the property were not in trust, and that would include trustee fees, the preparation of a 1041, special accounting, the always reasonable and happy to pay attorney's fees, those now will be deductible to the trust, which is another reason to consider a trust and also to have a mechanism perhaps to go from non-grantor trust status to later going back to grantor trust status where things will pass through, but we'll be back to being able to deduct things like tax preparation fees. So that's something to keep in mind. Final question. What about sprinkle trusts? I mean, this is kind of out of the old bag of tricks, but I think it still works. So I create a trust for all my children, all my grandchildren. Um, it's totally discretionary. Now, but now I have, my wife and I can put $22 million in that trust. Marty, what do you think? Um, I, I think it's a great idea. We, we talked in a different podcast about possible benefits of creating non-grantor trusts where you could sprinkle income in through the DNI structure, push income out to uh, beneficiaries that are named uh, in the class of beneficiaries that may be in not only a lower bracket from a federal perspective, uh, to income shift, but also who may be in a no-tax state when you have other beneficiaries, uh, even especially the parent that's a settlor in a, in a very high-tax state, uh, especially in light of the loss of the SALT deduction. But, but having a sprinkle trust is very powerful from an asset protection perspective. It's very difficult for a claimant when you have a whole class of beneficiaries, and the larger the class, the better, and there's a discretionary authority uh, held by an independent trustee to sprinkle uh, income and in principle in their discretion amongst that class. 
So, so the concept of a sprinkle trust is something that, that is, is certainly a, a good attribute to have in uh, creating a, an, an asset protection trust in order to, to facilitate deflecting a claim or challenge by a, divor a divorcing spouse of one of the beneficiaries or a claimant of one of the beneficiaries. And it dovetails very well with the, the tax planning, income tax planning we want to do in light of tax reform, salt limitations, and so on. So that's certainly something to consider. And just to reiterate a point I made earlier, uh, with a little more clarity, I had talked about going back and revisiting uh, before gifts are made, especially gifts in the amounts of these large new exemptions, the existing trust structures so that they're first optimal or optimized before we make a gift to them. Uh, something that you might even consider doing, um, and you have to look obviously at the gift tax consequences, is it may be possible through a non-judicial modification, not a decanting, to actually add beneficiaries to a trust. Uh, Delaware is just one example, has an incredibly broad, robust uh, non-judicial modification statute. If the settlor is alive, you can have by consent of the settlor and all the parties uh, anything done that could have been done when the trust was initially created. So you can actually even add or change the class of beneficiaries. Be careful if there's existing claims in doing that and what that might create by way of exposure and be careful and mindful of possible uh, gift implications. It may be better to simply create a new trust uh, for the new exemption uh, that's gonna be given and that's something practitioners should look at. And it's important to bring these points up because many clients are gonna be inclined to say, well, gee, I have an existing trust, why should I pay new legal fees? Well, but if the existing trust is not optimal uh, and decanting can't provide all the modifications you want and allocating late GST exemption uh, can't give you all the tax results you want and maybe better uh, just to create a new trust. Jonathan, Marty, once again, your, your insight is so powerful and we're so grateful you could be with us today. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler with Marty Shankman and Jonathan Blockmacher. Thank you for joining us today.